Welcome to season two of our Brave New You Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Lou Hamilton, co-founder with Meredith Hepner-Chapman of Brave New You Apparel. I interview real-life brave new girls and guys who have chosen a road less traveled, risen to the challenges, and found the courage to keep going when the going gets tough. They share the lessons they've learned, their wins, and their vision for the future. Brave, bold, and sometimes bloody-minded, they bring you their stories from the edge. Senior foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times, Christina Lam OBE, is a best-selling author and has reported from the world's hotspots, starting with Afghanistan at the age of 22. She's gone on to win 15 major awards. Her writing often highlights how war affects women, and her latest book is Our Bodies, Their Battlefield. Welcome, Christina, to Brave New You Tribe. So, hi, Christina, how are you? Very well. Oh, thank you. How's it feeling being a correspondent in lockdown? Well, it's a strange time to be a foreign correspondent because obviously we can't travel. So I'm not jumping on a plane in the way that I would normally be. But I've ended up doing reporting really for the first time in my career on my own country and own city. So actually I've been pretty busy. It's just a different kind of reporting and also still trying to remind people that the world out there exists and hasn't stopped. Well, that's something that uh, I was uh, shaken out of my coronavirus crisis cocoon this weekend when I read two of your articles, one which really described the most brutal horror and the other one that, that gave hope. Can you talk about both of those and how you came to be writing about them? Yeah, well, two very different stories of living through a global pandemic and the biggest crisis of our lifetimes for most of us. Um, So it's understandable that people would be very inward looking, but the rest of the world hasn't stopped and bad things are still happening, but also some good things. So uh, last week I wrote about two really quite different things. One about an amazing group of Yazidi women who had been, some of them had been captured under ISIS and held as sex slaves, who were literally risking their lives to try and clear their homeland, Shingal, for Yazidis to go back. Um, most, well, about three quarters of Yazidis are still living in refugee camps in Iraq. And they can't go back because their area is completely littered with mines and IEDs that ISIS left there. So these women have trained to be a female demining team and are going and um, going testing the area every day, trying to clear it of mines. So incredibly brave work. And uh, one in particular that is the mine group leader, Hannah is um, a mother of three and so I was talking to her of course everything now is by video but talking to her by video into her home in Shingal with her, her little kids there so that was very inspiring but I also last week a really terrible thing happened which I think is probably the worst thing I've ever seen in 33 years of reporting And that was a horrific attack on the maternity hospital in Kabul, in which gunmen on Tuesday morning entered the hospital and gunned down pregnant mothers, mothers that just given birth, 
at newborn babies uh, and killing more than 20 people. It's hard to think of really a more monstrous attack than that and seeing the pictures of the Afghan special forces coming out carrying uh, newborn babies in blood-stained blankets is really heart really heartbreaking hard to watch. So as a as a writer as a reporter as someone who goes and brings these stories back to us to remind us that these things are happening in the world you know knowledge is power and how does this knowledge give us power to help to to not feel powerless to to do something in some way in the case of the Yazidi women of course what they're doing is very inspiring and good if people contribute to help the organization that they're working for clearing the minds of minds advisory group which is a British NGO in the case of what happened in Afghanistan, uh, you know, you hope sometimes that something is so shocking that it will actually shake people into doing something, whether it's international community putting pressure on Afghanistan to try and really come to some kind of proper peace agreement or, you know, Afghan political leaders themselves coming together. And actually, I was very kind of despairing of Afghanistan when this happened because I just thought, you know, every time you think that things can't get worse, then it, it does. And war has been going on for 40 years there, so people know a little different. But actually, the Afghan political leadership have, after that attack, have now reached a kind of power-sharing deal between two rivals, both of whom claim that they won elections and had set up rival governments. So at least now there's some more unity, which then gives them more of a, a better position in order to deal, try and reach a deal with the Taliban. So, but I have to say, I mean, each year the numbers go up in Afghanistan of casualties. And this year, again, it is worse than last year, which was a record number. So figures just came out for April and 380 people, civilians had been killed. So, you know, that's, you're talking about almost 15 people a day. I wonder how it makes you feel, these sort of endless casualties, when you've been reporting on Afghanistan since the beginning of your career. Can you talk about how you first started and, and how you've got to where you are now? So I didn't set out to be a war correspondent. I actually didn't even set out to be a journalist. I really wanted to, I always wanted to write. I loved writing. And I guess I was to have adventures and travel. I always used to read a lot about explorers and things like that. But when I was at university, one day a friend was going to a cheese and wine party and so invited me to go along for free cheese and wine. <laughs> I was a student, so of course I went. And that party was actually for the university newspaper. So all the different section editors spoke about the, the paper and I thought it sounded very interesting. So I joined and I ended up editing the paper. So that sort of got me interested in journalism. And then when I left university, I interned in the summer at the Financial Times, which was a, an amazing introduction. And they had a huge, as they still do, foreign team at and I thought the foreign side was very kind of exotic and glamorous. And one day, the foreign editor was supposed to be going to a lunch of South Asian politicians. At the last minute, he couldn't go. 
So he asked me if I wanted to go because he said, you're always going on about India. I had actually traveled in India as a student and I had done a thesis on Kashmir. So I, um, of course, agreed and went to this lunch and I sat next to somebody who was Secretary General of the Pakistan People's Party, uh, which was the opposition party. And at that time, Pakistan was a military dictatorship, so the opposition was really in exile, and its leader was Benazir Bhutto. So this man asked me if I'd like to interview Benazir, which was living in London. So of course I said yes, and so I went to interview her, and the day that I interviewed her was the day that she announced her engagement to Azif Ali Zidari. Anyway, I did the interview. I was very impressed by her, you know, this sort of young, glamorous woman who was sort of risking her life to try and bring democracy to Pakistan. And then I got a job at Central TV in Birmingham as a trainee TV reporter. Actually, wasn't really interested in being a TV reporter, but it seemed like a great opportunity. And so I was working there. And one day I came home from work and there was this most beautiful gold inscribed invitation on my doormat and it was to Benazir's wedding in Pakistan. So I had never been to Pakistan. Of course I went and it was an amazing introduction to Pakistan. The wedding was very um, colourful, like something out of Arabian nights. But also every night after all the ceremonial things there were, discussions or meetings with Benazir's political colleagues to look at how to overthrow the dictatorship. And I was fascinated. I was meeting these young people who had been tortured and tear gassed and arrested uh, or to try and bring democracy to their country, which was something that I had always taken for granted. So I thought, I don't really want to go back and cover local news in Birmingham. I want to go and live in Pakistan. So I came back and gave it my notice and went to Pakistan and started freelancing. But the reason that I started covering Afghanistan, which borders Pakistan, was that all the foreign editors I spoke to about freelancing for them all said they were not interested in Pakistan because General Zia had been in power for 11 and a half years. And they didn't think things were going to change, but they were interested in Afghanistan because at the time it was under Soviet occupation and Afghan Mujahideen were fighting to try and push out the Russians. So I, because of that, moved to Peshawar on the border with Afghanistan and started traveling in and out of Afghanistan. You were embedded with the Mujahideen for a while? Well, we didn't used to use the embedded as a more recent thing. And I think of it more as a sort of official thing with when you're embedded with an army. But I suppose it was a kind of embedding. Um, and so I went with different, the Mujahideen were split into lots of different groups, seven major different organisations, but also some independent groups too. So I used to go with different groups and travelling into Afghanistan because they all were based in different parts of the country. So it depended where you wanted to go. So I travelled with them to see what was happening and kind of fell in love with Afghanistan, like many people do. I don't like to ask about you being a woman war correspondent or foreign correspondent, 
but but actually you have talked about that there have been certain advantages to being a woman as a foreign correspondent. Well, it's mixed because I think most people always assume being, because I've mostly spent my career in the Middle East and South Asia where more patriarchal societies, that it's a disadvantage to be a woman. And actually, I don't really think it has been because actually go into female quarters of a house or a perda area and I can and that to me is a very important part of the story so I'm seeing more of the story but also I mean to be honest I think sometimes particularly when I was very young that I would be interviewing male political leaders or commanders who I guess, didn't take a young woman very seriously. They didn't really believe that you were actually the Financial Times correspondent or whatever. And so would tell you a lot more things than they would if they met a sort of middle-aged male Times reporter. (laughs) And the kinds of stories that you have reported on, you've got in sort of behind the scenes, behind what you've called the bang-bang to the stories of the other people who are affected, not just the soldiers and the front line? I'm much more interested in the people living behind the lines. I I mean, I accept that if a war is going on, that the fighting is part of the story, but it's not as interesting to me as people trying to keep their lives together when all hell is breaking loose around them. And it's always fascinated me, actually, also how resilient people are. That in You look at people in these terrible situations under siege in Aleppo from the shelling of Assad and think, you know, if you were in that situation, would you really be able to cope in the way But I suppose in a way now with the coronavirus, you know, our lives changed dramatically pretty much overnight to this strange new normality. And we probably coped a lot better than we might have thought if somebody had told us, uh, you know, earlier this is going to happen. We probably would have thought, was it? We couldn't possibly imagine living under lockdown for week after week, but uh, we did. (laughs) And when you go into these environments, Are you afraid when you're in them or do you anticipate with fear or do you only feel those kind of feelings after you've got out? I don't believe people that say that they're not frightened. (laughs) I mean, you're going into really scary situations. It would be weird not to be frightened. But definitely the cases are more frightened before because when you're going somewhere, which you know is very dangerous, you were thinking about it a lot. When you're actually in the middle of it, you're actually well, concentrating on trying to survive, but also very interested in what's happening in the story, and almost as though you're slightly outside of things. I also think, you know, the real risk is really always taken by photographers and cameramen because they have to be much more in the middle of the action to get the pictures. You know, I don't have to be right in the centre of a firefight to be able to watch the firefight and write about it. I can see it from a little further back. Do you feel that, um, as a journalist, that the landscape has become more dangerous for you? It definitely did become more dangerous in that when I started out, we weren't targets if anything happened to us. So obviously, you know, going into Afghanistan with the Mujahideen, who the Russians were bombing and had put landmines all over Afghanistan, was pretty dangerous, I suppose. But they weren't 
targeting us specifically as journalists. We happened to be with the Mujahideen. So if they were bombed when we were with them, as happened to me, you could be injured or hurt, or you could step on a landmine and lose your foot or be killed. But what changed after 9-11 was that uh, we really became targets and people saw that they could get bigger headlines, some of the terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda, by kidnapping a journalist and beheading them than they would if they did that to a soldier because uh, more soldiers were being killed. So that changed things quite a lot and meant that some places became pretty much impossible to go to as a Western journalist. And what drives you to keep going back and unearthing the stories, particularly of women in conflict? I want people to know what's happening because people don't know, then things won't change. And I can give a platform for women who terrible things are happening to but don't have access to tell their story outside. Of course, these days with social media and things, it is easier than it used to be but in many places I'm going to you know these people are in very remote places they're poor people they don't have ability or resources to um, access those kind of things or people wouldn't listen to them so uh, what I try and do is is tell those people's stories and as you said I'm particularly interested in women because I mean it's changed but when I started there were very few women doing what I do I've always really focused on on telling women's stories in particular I think partly because when I started out there were very few women correspondents so um, I was very much in the minority that's changed which is good particularly in the Middle East there's lots of women reporters particularly in TV and particularly American media. I think Britain's still a bit behind, but it's very different. But actually, even so, the stories tend to focus much more on what men are doing as though they're the main kind of players in all of these (laughs) events. And so I very much try and show people what women are doing and heroism of women in these situations. But also, as we talked about at the beginning, doing these two very different stories about the heroic Yazidi women and then the massacre of women in Afghanistan. I'm afraid that in conflicts and violence, often um, women are bear the brunt of it. I've seen in the last few years, particularly, more and more violence against women. And that made me really angry. So my latest book is about that because I couldn't really understand why it should be when we seem to be much more aware of women's rights and yet women were being so brutally attacked in all of these conflicts. Yes, your book, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, it really goes into detail and you realise that this is historical, this goes back forever, but it is. it seems to be getting worse and worse. And yet it's, it's very rarely prosecuted. And we hear headlines, you know, we, we heard about the Jabot girls, but then you reveal that there are thousands and thousands of other women who have been in that situation, are in that situation. 
Yes, I I wrote the book, as I said, because I was um, shocked that violence against women, sexual violence, was seemed to be being used more and more. And in particular, over the last few years, so first of all, the Yazidi girls and women who were captured by ISIS and kept as sex slaves. And some of the stories that they were telling me, I had never heard anything like, I mean, being traded on like goats over and over again. I met one girl, Naima, who was traded to 12 different ISIS fighters. Another 16-year-old girl who told me that the worst night of her life was when this ISIS, fat ISIS judge who had abducted her then brought home a 10-year-old girl and raped her in the room next to her as she cried for her mother all night. So these are really shocking stories. And then not long after that, I was in Nigeria when the Chibok girls were kidnapped and I went because they had been kidnapped. So this was like 219 schoolgirls taken from their dormitory in the middle of the night by Boko Haram fighters and disappeared basically. So I went to cover that and uh, found that actually that was really the tip of the iceberg, that there were thousands of other girls being kidnapped. And then I was also not long after that in Bangladesh when the Rohingya women were coming over the border from Burma because the Burmese military were going into their villages, setting fire to their hearts, killing the men and gang raping the women often in front of their children. So all of these stories within a couple of years, and it just seemed like how could these things all be going on in the 21st century? So I started kind of becoming obsessed with it because to be completely honest, it's quite difficult to get these kind of stories in a, a newspaper, which angers me because I think just because things are difficult to read about doesn't mean that we should ignore them. I think we should be saying, why is this still happening and doing something about it? So I started looking more and more and it it became very clear that actually this is happening in so many different places and largely it seems to be happening more and more. Partly it's a very cheap weapon. It doesn't cost anything, right? to for them the male perpetrators and it's effective but mostly they do it with complete impunity nobody is brought to justice we all know what happened to the Yazidi women there have been lots of coverage of it but until March not a single person had been convicted for what they did to the Yazidis and the only reason one was in March was because a brave Yazidi woman like stood up in a court in Iraq in front of him and and demanded that this be changed. And if you go back through recent history, I mean, we know what happened in the Second World War, the, what the Russians did to German women, an estimated two million women were raped um, by the Red Army. We know about the Japanese army taking women in Southeast Asia Um, from Philippines, from Korea and other places and keeping them as comfort women to service their soldiers. And yet, at the end of that war, there was a big tribunal. It was Nuremberg and there was the Tokyo Tribunal. And yet, there was no mention of sexual violence or rape. It was as if that was somehow something that didn't matter. And of course, if you talk to any of the women survivors, they will all say 
that, or many of them say that to them that was worse than being killed. That, and so it seems to me that we need to do something about this. This has been a war crime for over a hundred years and um, it should be prosecuted. The horrendous attacks on these women, it's not just when it happens, it's what happens afterwards, because often these women are then ostracised and isolated on their own, away from their own communities as a result of what's happened to them. Well, that's one of the horrific things about this, that, that they are the victim, and yet they're the ones that are often ostracised or castigated, and so they become victims twice over and that's so hard to see and to deal with really I mean it's just you know if in places like DRC where um, lots of women are raped really horrifically by militia often need a lot of surgery and then go back to their communities they want to accept them back and so then they have no means to look after themselves so apart from all the physical and mental torture they've gone through then they don't have any means of actually surviving so uh, you know it's something so insidious that affects women in so many many ways to their whole lifetime and it's just not acceptable and it I think the onus is on us in the international community to be demanding something change otherwise it won't and there have been I write in my book is not completely <laughs> negative there have been cases in domestic courts in in recent years in places like Guatemala that had groundbreaking verdicts but they're very few and they're largely the result of incredible bravery by and tenacity by women going to court over and over again over years and years and often with like female prosecutors, usually needs to have a female judge uh, in order to get this conviction. All the cases I found had a female judge involved. Or it's luck that somehow somebody's been found and evidence. There's no kind of institutional system um, that's really trying to do something about this. And that's what needs to change. And that's why it's so important for books like yours to be out there so that somehow somewhere something can be done you know there are quite a lot of heroes in my book some of them are men um doing amazing things and they need help too they need people to be backing what they're doing so they don't feel like they're just kind of left on the on their own often at risk and you know the me too movement which is amazing and you know enabled lots of women to speak up for the first time about what had happened to them but it's remained very much a western <laughs> movement and we need to remember that in many parts of the world it's very difficult for women to it's difficult everywhere for women to stand up and talk about these things but in some parts of the world the people who are doing these things to them are the police or the army or the militia or people with guns who are controlling their community. So it's almost impossible for them to be able to get justice unless there is some kind of outside help. And I wonder for you, making such impactful work and being a sort of on the front line talking to these women and and hearing their stories face to face. You know, when we first met, you'd been in you'd personally been in an ambush. 
Um, since then, you were on the bus with Benazir Bhutto when it got blown up. And then hearing these stories, what's the impact on you? I mean, it's very difficult stories to hear. And, you know, I've written a book of stories that are hard for people to read as well. But I don't think that that means we shouldn't read about them. We need to care about them and, and make a difference. And and so, you know, I, I'm trying to to tell these stories to to make a difference, you know, at least... As one of the Yazidi women said to me that she wanted to tell her story because she wanted to be able to feel at least people can't say they didn't know. And so that's me. If I can do that, um, just try and make sure that people know about things. If they don't do anything about it, then, you know, I'm sorry. I hope that it would change things. But at least I've actually, you know, put the, the pebble in the water, if you like. Exactly. And there have been stories that you've told where you've been able to see that change has happened and that girls and women have taken things into their own hands. In, in, in your book, you tell of those stories where women have created compounds where, where other women who've, who've been attacked can go and, and rebuild their lives. What are the standout stories for you that sort of give you hope? Well, there's so many. That's why I do the job, really, because of the many amazing people that I meet in these places. So actually, I mean, during the lockdown, I've been posting stories on Facebook. I'm a big believer in the sort of power of a story, uh, posting stories of um, on my page of some of the people that I've met in different places, whether it's sort of the mum who lost her son in Kashmir and, and now set up an organisation trying to find or help all the thousands of mothers who lost their, their children. Or people like Dr McQuiggy, who is this most amazing gynaecologist in Democratic Republic of Congo in Bukavu, who set up this hospital which has treated more than 50,000 victims of rape and you know lives under armed guard because people want to kill him for what he's doing so you know there's any number of people like that and I've also been lucky enough in some of the books that I've done to work with people like Malala the girl who was shot by the Taliban who is um, absolutely um, a joy to be with and amazing inspiration I think for many people and also Najin who is this absolutely adorable Syrian refugee from Aleppo who has cerebral palsy so she can't walk and she um, traveled from Aleppo to Germany during the refugee crisis with her sister pushing this clapped out old wheelchair um, I don't know how they possibly did it it's hard enough to be a refugee if you are able-bodied I mean you're somebody nobody wants everyone's trying to get you out of their country and um, they were tear gassed and you know armed guards trying to stop them entering and people smugglers putting them into overcrowded dinghies that often sunk and charging them lots of money um, but somehow they made it all the way to Germany. And uh, Najine is one of these people who, if you spend time with her, you just feel better about life. In fact, we were just Skyping last week. She made me laugh a lot. And despite all of the very 
difficult things she's been through. She was saying, oh, lockdown is nothing new for me because she basically lived under siege in Aleppo. But even before that, she had um, was unable to walk so she could and they lived in a fifth floor apartment so pretty much and it had no elevator or anything like that so pretty much never left the apartment so she used to watch tv day and night and taught herself fluent english from watching an american soap opera but she just got a very positive outlook a very sunny outlook on life in fact when i first met her i asked her what she thought of europe and she said well i'm disappointed so i was a bit like well, why are you disappointed and she said oh well i i thought the food would be better and it turned out because she was obsessed by watching master chef she thought every meal in Europe would look you know absolutely amazing <laughs> yeah so it, it, spending time with people like that is just really a, a great privilege. At this time in in lockdown I wonder whether you've had time to reflect both on what you've experienced in the past but but also thinking about the future when we're sort of all let out and what more do you want to do? Well I hope that I can go back to traveling and covering things because as I said at the beginning the world hasn't stopped and bad things are still going on there's still wars going on in places like Afghanistan and Yemen Um, of course very concerned that so far coronavirus has not swept through Africa and some of the refugee camps in the way that I feared that it would but you know, I don't think we could be complacent about that. Um, there are cases in all of these countries. Every country in Africa has got coronavirus. And the refugee camps now, Moria in Lesbos and the Rohingya camp in Cox's Bazaar in um, Bangladesh. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of concern that that will spread like wildfire. So... I think we need to be very alert to that and mustn't forget because actually now this is something happening it's the first time in our lifetime this is something happening to everybody all around the world and and we're only as strong as the weakest health system so we may stop coronavirus here but London is a hub if it's still in other countries and then people fly in it's going to come back again so it's in our interest that we help people all around the world to to deal with this but I can't say if you're asking that sort of question that I've sort of spent lockdown really thinking about what my life means or anything because frankly I've been really busy so I've not had I feel like I have less time than I normally do which is a bit surprising. Yes, I know that feeling. And I I always ask our guests what um, courage means to them. And I wonder what courage means to you, having seen everything that you've seen. Uh, I think that's a difficult question to answer. I mean, I, the courage that I've seen in all of these places at war where um, of the ordinary people, right, not, not the fighters, um, I mean, they may be courageous too, but the people that are somehow educating and protecting and sheltering their their children while all of this is going on, that's real courage to me. And looking back at your younger self, what three bits of advice would you give her? Follow your dreams. (laughs) 
I mean, at school, I was kind of told, but you can't make a living writing or, you know, and to try and do something that was a, a proper job. <laughs> um, I slightly resent that now. <laughs> so to follow your dreams and not, not be put off, but also, you know, to remember that any time we might be living a comfortable life and things could change overnight. A lot of these Syrian refugees in particular that I was meeting, you know, in muddy fields in Europe um, lying on the ground were surgeons and architects and accountants and, you know, professional people that never thought that they were going to end up in a, a situation like that. So always have compassion for other people because, you know, these things, you should have compassion passion anyway of course but these things may happen to you one day too and if you were to recommend another brave new girl who would you recommend well I already told you about Malala and Nujin <laughs> they're my sort of heroines thank you so much Christina it's been really inspiring really powerful impactful work thank you and see you soon all right thank you <laughs> bye bye-bye Christina for bringing us these stories from the edge even when that place is very dark dangerous and disturbing because with your words you also show us where humanity still manages to flower in the rubble and that's where hope lies please go to www.christinalam.net to find out more about Christina's work thanks also to Podstar PR for producing the series And to you, our tribe for listening. Download, rate and review on your podcast provider so that we can keep bringing you this free podcast. Goodbye for now and see you next time.